This is a podcast by The Straits Times. Hello and welcome to When All This Is Over, a special Straits Times podcast brought to you by the National Arts Council. To inspire and uplift readers as the country emerges from the COVID-19 circuit breaker, we asked 20 local writers to come up with poetry and prose about the pandemic and what it will be like when all this is over. We will be releasing these over the next few weeks. This is the second of a four-part series. The Window by Theophilus Quack Zero waited by her window as the air became raw with the noise of engines and looked up to see plumes of red and white smoke billowing toward the horizon. This was her favourite part of the parade, hearing the wave of sound wash over the city, so loud it seemed to drown out thought. From her Bukit Hosui flat, she had a clear but not unaffordable view of the fly-past, and if she looked out again later in the evening, might even see the fireworks bleaching the night sky above Marina Bay. Framed by the windows of the block opposite, families were gathering in front of glowing TV sets, parents clapping toddlers' hands in time with the sing-along, and teenagers on their phones, pretending to ignore the excitement. To the untrained eye, some looked nearly identical. Only she knew that even now, with the same scene broadcast in every living room, each one had their own idea of the country they were celebrating. They all imagined a different Singapore to any of the others. She would take credit for that. For months, she had successfully lulled the city into believing that they were fighting an unknown disease, creating the perfect conditions to hasten the spread of three common but deadly illnesses in her arsenal. The first, panic, was easy. It flared up like an old infection and almost immediately caused an itch that sent everyone to the shops. The second, prejudice, was more subtle. You couldn't normally tell if someone had it, but it showed up as a verbal tick when they tried to explain, for instance, why some seemed more susceptible to the disease than others. A third ailment, pride, was already endemic. You could see the symptoms in the first weeks of the outbreak when people began crowing about how well the city had done in fighting the disease. As the numbers continued to rise, they found a way to talk about those numbers as if they were in some far-flung place, not the same community they inhabited. Even now, as the tanks rolled on screen, pride threatened to make a comeback. It had a way of spreading quickly on festive occasions, and could be exceptionally contagious. Truth be told, all this had gone more smoothly than she expected. There were points when she thought her plans would be ruined, like when places of worship opened their doors to take in the homeless, a startling moment of generosity that made her think they had developed an immunity to panic. Or right after the disease took hold in the migrants' dormitories, when people rushed to support charities, delivering food to facilities on the very fringes of the island. Yet these were few and far between, singular acts of kindness that never really gained momentum. 
She suspected that they, too, were reactions to the disease, the body responding in strange ways to the shock of attack. In any case, resistance to common illnesses was at an all-time low. All she did was persuade her neighbours that these were less malign than the virus out there. Most forgave themselves easily for letting these maladies have the upper hand as they busied themselves with the crisis. Another National Day song blared from her speakers, joining the tinny voices wafting down her corridor. On the surface, and sometimes she thought, even deep down, she was not so different from her neighbours. Except this year, any apparent similarity was a little further from the truth. The illnesses she had spread would make them think of their own first when they thought of Singapore. For each of them, the city had become a crowd, resembling only their image of themselves. She found herself smiling at the thought. She knew she was good at what she did. They didn't call her patient zero for nothing. But she wouldn't count her chickens either. This city could surprise her, even at the best of times. It had a strange knack for pulling together despite her best efforts, and deep reserves of decency she hardly knew about. The fight was hardly over, but she would be prepared. Still smiling, she went back inside, then turned and shut the window firmly behind her. A Visitation at Mustafa, Daryl Seal and M. It was like nothing had changed. We were in the luggage department, just two people among many others, trying to judge which suitcase would be ours by the end of the hour. I never forgot how large the department was, but I suppose it's easy to forget how large anything is in Mustafa. The bags occupied one entire end of L2, hundreds of them displayed for sale, propped up and gathered together like relics, monuments, a memorial. I asked my companion if there were enough tourists in the world to warrant the production of so many bags, and he said, sure, of course. It was just a matter of time. He then said something else, something that I felt was rather enlightening. It's not about demand. It's not even about supply. He smiled. It's about the illusion. I blinked, somehow stirred by what he said. I was moved not by what I understood, but what I felt to be the truth of feeling that ran beneath his words. I remained by his side, watched him go through his usual process at Mustafa, staring, testing, endlessly calculating. He seemed ready to make a final decision when I received a text from a mutual friend of ours, wondering if we could buy a few things for her while we were here. I showed the text to my companion. You can get, for sure, he said. But maybe you go by first? I nodded. Find me when you're done. I spent the next 45 minutes feeling like I was on a scavenger hunt. The shaving cream was an L1, but the toilet paper was an L3. The HDMI adapter sent me down to B2, but the frozen doll next on the list meant that I had to make my way up to L2 again, where at last left my companion. He didn't message me, by the way, to say that he was done. I wondered what a privilege it was to squander away time like that, running an errand for a trip overseas. 
And did I even want to be on this trip? I asked myself. Wasn't it too soon? Earlier he asked if I needed a suitcase too, and I, I said no, I didn't. I'm happy with the one I have from before. Before he said, I mean, before. Yes, I said, before. I walked up the stairs, pausing on B one. I love the noise of this place as well as its smells, a combination of flowers, baby powder, and fresh produce and trolleys. But B one was special. It sparkled quite literally with gold and silver and diamonds. I went over to a nearby display and was peering down at a row of ornate bangles when I felt another change take place around me, a change I was unable to make sense of, like the lights dimming but also brightening, or like a dawn that was also a dusk. And that was when I saw it—the robed figure, climbing up the stairs to L1. It moved, unhurriedly, freely, seemingly without clear motive. Its robes long enough to disguise the presence of its feet. I followed it. I watched it wander around the ground floor. I saw the way it rubbed its hands together before it placed them over the shelves. It brushed its hands over the milk powder, the Maybelline mascaras, the contact lens liquid. It touched with love the painkillers, face masks, anti-flu medication. Everything becoming shinier, brighter, or gleaming in their places. The figure continued to bestow its blessings over the Kenzo Yo de Parfum, the Gillette shavers and Lumix DSLRs, and later Abonel too, the Coach handbags and the Amus Frikand, the nuts and dates and the Ramdev tea masala. We were moving on to L3 when I realized, with no real sense of surprise, a growing throng of shoppers gathering around me, all following the figure like I was, all watching the radiant being bless every item in Mustafa. I felt a hand on my shoulder. I turned, nearly gasped. It was my companion, finally, with an urgent look on his face, asking me when the procession had begun. I told him I didn't know. He then pointed at the items in my shopping cart. Were they blessed? Were they touched by the divine? No, I told him. They did not have the opportunity. An older woman then asked the two of us, having overheard our exchange. Do you know where we are going? What happens next once there is nothing left in Mustafa to bless? Will it bless us next? I stared at her, calmly, as the crowd around me grew restless. She was asking other people now if the figure would bless us too, if we were worthy of its blessings. What about us? She said, our lives. And I found myself smiling at her, sadder and yet more serene. Just as the masses began to clamor and make their demands, I watched my companion chase after the figure, just as it ascended the stairs to the topmost floor. Silent Revolution by Deborah Emanuel. In the spaces between these words, first light blooms upon a mountain of shadow. All that is hidden floats to the surface, dying fish rising out of the ocean. All that was unsaid dangles in the air, a delicate mobile dancing into form. 
In solitude, resilience springs forth, a fountain which did not know itself. In the chasms between each sound, whole civilizations are found, birthing themselves from the rubble, peeling away bandages from forgotten fruit, striking matches for a new fire. A fragile world crumbles to become a perfect circle. A star shines bright in a traffic void sky. From the silence, a single breath is drawn into the belly of the universe releasing winds of revolution upon an unsuspecting earth. In Between by Kirsten Chen The child's whimper seeps through the wall in jagged staccato beats. I know, Cookie, I know, the mother says. Oh, Cookie, I know. The whimper crescendos to an ear-splitting howl. God damn it, says the father, pounding our shared wall so hard, I jump back, dropping my toothbrush in the sink. God damn it, he says again softly. You have to, Cookie. You just have to. By my count, it's the fourth time they've tried to potty train that kid. I moved into this apartment a month before lockdown to be closer to the opera house, and then two weeks later got laid off. No one knows, not even my parents, who call weekly from Singapore offering to send masks to San Francisco. Ma's prodding to think about coming home would only grow to a demand. I've yet to really meet the family next door. Once, I passed them in the hallway and the parents nodded briskly, their eyes opaque above matching bandanas, while Cookie waved and hollered, Hello, will you be my friend? In the neighboring bathroom, the boy wails and wails. I plop myself down on the lid of the toilet to listen. It's quite amazing, really, that something so small can make such a big sound. His stamina is impressive. He's barely taking breaths. I wonder if this kid has extraordinarily large lung capacity or if it's hardwired into all of them through natural selection. His cry is soaring and bright with a hint of a whine, a Puccini leading man. Better have a backup plan, kid, I think. Unless you actually end up a tenor. Everyone swoons for a tenor, unlike us dime a dozen sopranos. After a while, the howls make my head throb, so I shut the bathroom door behind me, moving stealthily through the apartment like a cat burglar. In my old place, I showed no such restraint. I did my vocalizations in the kitchen while waiting for the kettle to boil, hummed arias in the shower, blasted choral music in the middle of the afternoon. Here, however, I dare not sing along to the stereo. I imagine the child's mother overhearing and thinking, what a pretty voice in that plain sort of way. I go back to the bathroom because now I have to pee. The boy is still sobbing. The father says the boy cannot get up until he goes potty and that they will sit there all day if they have to. But the boy and I both know Dad's cave before. 
Just try, the mother pleads, just relax and try. Her voice is a mellifluous, honeyed contralto. Shh, she says encouragingly. Shh. Give it a rest, the father says. His voice is wimpy and nasal. What ideas do you have, she snaps. The boy's sobs snowball into a full-on screech. I flush and lather my hands with soap. The mother says, no, Cookie, we're not mad at you. Oh, we most certainly are. What is wrong with you, Abe? You're making it worse. I've had enough, the father says. He's a baby, says the mother. Three and a goddamn half. The boy cries and cries. He's scared, the mother says. You can't go when you're scared. I dry my hands. The towel reeks of mildew. He should be scared. Nobody wants to be friends with the one kid who still wets his pants. Shut it, says the mother. Just shut it. Fine, the father storms away. The mother says to the boy, Daddy's impatient is all. I bark out a laugh and then cough loudly to cover it up. At last, the mother lets the boy off the toilet. The father returns and sheepishly apologizes. There are kisses and hugs and then yelps and shrieks and curses as the boy apparently pees all over the floor. The father says, you wretched kid. The mother says, why, Cookie, why, why, why? I picture the boy standing there, quaking, exposed, the way I was the day they told me not to come back. I was so ashamed I rushed out without clearing my cubby, sacrificing old photos tacked to the wall, images of me as a child in full costume, flanked by my beaming parents. How proud they'd been of my voice until I'd told them the only thing I wanted to do was sing. Across the wall, the father rants and the mother moans and then the kid lets out a laugh that is high and pure and clean as a rainbow after a deluge, as if to say, look at me, here I am. On the Other Side by Judith Huang When all this is over, I will not cry to myself after seeing your face on my phone, wondering if it's the last time we'll speak. When all this is over, I will not raise my phone to check the numbers every morning before shaking off sleep. When all this is over, my flight will land like silk, lighting on the runway, doors gliding open to welcome me home. When all this is over, we will take the lift up to your living room, pressing the button with no hesitation. When all this is over, we will look each other in the eye with only the air as mediation. When all this is over, we will sigh and close our eyes, laugh as we walk out into sunshine and feel the light dancing on our lids. Thank you for listening to When All This Is Over, a special Straits Times podcast brought to you by the National Arts Council. For more local digital arts offerings, visit alist.sg to appreciate hashtag SGCultureAnywhere. That was an SBH podcast by The Straits Times. Find us on Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts or streaming on Google Home. Do feedback to us at podcast.sbh.com.sg. You can also check out more podcasts on various topics at The Straits Times, The Business Times and Money FM 89.3.